Let's read together (coughs) Revelation chapter 2. We'll start in verse 12 and go through verse 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites into sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. Lord God, open your word to our hearts and minds this evening. Help us to hear from you as only you can speak to us through your word. Show us, Lord, how to live like you intend us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to see tonight is how the church at Pergamum made deals with their culture. Deals with their culture. It seems that they dealt well with their culture. If you look at the passage there, it talks about where they live. And it says that Christ knows them. He knows where they live. And so he not only knows them, but he knows exactly where they're living, what they're going through. And so if you're taking notes, you probably want to put point one, the cultural problem that they have. The cultural problem that they have is they live where Satan lives. And so Pergamum, if you want to do a little history study on it, there may be three or four reasons why that would be called where Satan lives. One, it had a big altar to Zeus there. Okay, just a big altar to Zeus. They were, uh, quote-unquote, somewhat of Zeus' followers, but they had a big altar there. There was also uh, uh, an altar there to what we would call the snake god or the medical god. If you've ever seen uh, a medical emblem that has a staff with a snake coiled around it, that is where that worship started. And it was actually thought by many people that the snake and touching the snake in that temple would have healing power, and so people would come. And this is crazy. Okay, this is a little crazy, but I mean, people, people are crazy. They would come to this temple and they would go in and they would fall asleep. They would lie down and they would hope that in the night one of these snakes would come and touch them and heal them. Anybody want to sign up for that? Just hide her. And we know that, like I said earlier, people are crazy. Okay, just confirms it. That's one of the things. And then also probably the thing that most scholars agree with is, and this is the last thing that they would call this where Satan lives, is this is where emperor worship, Caesar worship, was just rampant. In other cities, they probably worshiped Caesar once a year. Here it was done every single day. They worshiped Caesar every single day. And if you didn't worship Caesar, then you would end up like Antipas here, where Christ affirms that he is a martyr and he was killed. In fact, one of the Caesars, one of the kings, one of the emperors there, in order to make sure that the Christians understood who they needed to worship, he boiled him alive. That's how this martyr died. 
So it was serious emperor worship here in Pergamum. It was serious. And you hear that here. He says that they have remained faithful. And so as their culture pursued emperor worship and Zeus worship and this healing culture worship, these people at this church did not do that. It says that they what? You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, even when one of your best buddies died by being boiled alive. My faithful witness who was put to death where Satan lives. And so if you look at that, you see the first thing is this cultural problem of where they lived, that they were overcoming that. They were the overcomers here. They had not given in. They had remained faithful. Now, for you and I, where we live may not be the den of Satan. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about where you live, but I live over there kind of close to one of the banks by Super One and got a nice little yard, got a little house. Not necessarily where I would say where Satan lives. I don't know where you live. Some of you may live in Shudrant. That might be where the den of Satan is. I, I don't know. I try not to go there. Uh, because of that fact. And so you may be uh, thinking, Casey, what does this have to do? Well, look, do we not live in a culture that is adverse to Christ? Sure we do. But beyond that, think about where you live. The United States, Ruston, Louisiana. You say, well, I have freedom to speak the name of Christ. I don't have to follow Zeus. I don't have to bow down and worship Donald Trump. But we worship cultural things, don't we? Some things that you and I may worship or struggle with worshiping because some of us may not be to the level of where the people of the church at Pergamum are. We may have to worship or we may feel like we have to worship materialism or the, the American image of Wealth and popularity and pride. Or the idea of the typical college student. Many people actually worship this. You want to know why? Because they can't get out of their head that they don't have to be that. The typical idea of the college student in America is one who cheats. Why? Because everybody does. How am I going to get ahead if I don't cheat? Let me ask you this. Would you rather have a doctor that got through med school by cheating or a doctor that got through med school by studying? Answer among yourselves. No need to bark it out. So many of you here tonight, you may be like, I would choose a doctor that, you know, he, he cheated in his undergrad, and then when he got to med school, he kind of got it together. That's great. That means he cuts people open but has no basic understanding of biology. That's awesome. That's the guy I want to go see, you know? What about this? A person that in a, is your accountant, they have an accounting degree from Louisiana Tech University, but they cheated. They, they used the test bank. They used all these answer keys that are passed around, and they cheated on that test. And they, they, they're going to do your taxes for you now. Isn't that wonderful? So when the IRS comes and they knock on your door and they say, sir, your taxes aren't in order, and you go, but my buddy who went to tech who has an accounting degree did my taxes, and your buddy goes, yeah, but I cheated. 
And I don't only cheat on the test, I cheated on your taxes for you. That's why you got so much back. Aren't you comfortable with that? And you're like, wait a minute, bro. You mean you cheated in school, then you cheated on my taxes. You're just a cheat. I mean, that's one thing. And the other typical ideas of American college students, what are they? Has sex a lot. You know what? You're like, you know, can't get away from that idea. We've actually met people at Beach Reach in Panama City on spring break. One girl we met, her grandmother gave her money to fly from Michigan to Panama City Beach to go sow her wild oats. I was like, your grandmother gave you money to come down here and have illicit sex. She goes, yeah, she told me to have a lot of sex while I was down here. I was like, what? Who's your grandma? She wouldn't tell me because I was going to write her a letter. Other typical ideas that college students have trouble getting away from, where our culture dictates this is how we should act, this is how we should be. Maybe it's drinking to excess. Whoa. You say, well, I mean, if you don't get drunk at least one time in college, you haven't lived. Well, you know what? Some people are so disposed to alcohol or predisposed to alcohol, they get drunk one time and they get drunk a lot after that because they can't control it. So what idea or ideal are you currently thinking culture says, I have to be this way, I need to be this way in order to be an American college student, that you say, maybe I'm not as strong as the people at Pergamum. I haven't remained faithful to Christ because I've worshipped this ideal more than I have actually worshipped the Savior and the Lord that I profess. Yes, there are statues in our lives that are not Zeus. They're not the medical healing God. They're not even Caesar but they've been imposed on us by culture and we bow down to them and we worship them because we don't worship the one true God. Not only are there external problems at Pergamon, but there are internal problems. If you look at the next paragraph, it says, Nevertheless, I have these few things against you. You have people who are holding to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So the people at Pergamum had made deals with the people in their church. They had succumbed to not only, uh, they had fought off the culture of the outside, but they had succumbed to the culture of the inside because they had allowed these false teachings and these false teachers into their church. You say, well, Casey, what's this whole idea with Balaam and Balak? Well, if you look at Numbers 22 through 24, that's where that story takes place in God's Word. I encourage you to read that. It's, it's pretty fascinating how it rolls out, and it's a really good idea of why he would use this, why John and, and would write this as he is trying to help the church at Pergamum figure out what they have done and what they are doing because it is the idea of being complacent and is the idea of ultimate compromise. 
So I'll break it down for you really quick, but I encourage you to read it. Balak is the king of the Moabites, and so he comes and he says, Hey guys, uh, hey Balaam, I know that you're a prophet, that you are a magician, that you are a soothsayer, you're a diviner, and I need you to curse the, 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 the children of God. I need you to curse them for me. Because there's many of them, and they're going to overtake our kingdom. And so this diviner, this magician, this prophet says, uh, Okay, let me ask God, and he does ask Yahweh God. He is not an Israelite prophet. He's kind of a non-Israelite prophet, but he's able to ask God, and God says, no, you can't curse him. And so Balaam comes back to the king and says, I can't curse him. And they do this three times. He says, can you curse him? No, I can't. I'll give you a lot of money. No, I can't curse him. God says no. And so he asks God three times, and God says no each time. And then... The prophet just can't help himself. He wants the money. He wants the popularity. He wants the king's favor so bad that he says, look, I can't curse them. God will not allow me to curse them, but I can tell you how to get to them. Have your women go to their men and be loose with them. You know, not like, hey, I'm loose, but like, Bow, chicka, wow, wow, chicka, wow, 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 loose. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you get people like, what is bow, chicka, 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 wow? What? Have sex with them. Golly, some of you guys just wondering about you sometimes, what your college education is doing for you. All right. And so they go and they just are, they just have, are able to have sex with the children of God. And so these men take on other wives, the Moabite wives, and so they, they take on these other wives, they have relationships with them, and they teach them to follow these false gods. And God gets really, really mad. So much so that there is the chapter 25, the uh, curse of Peor, and that is when God basically kills everyone that's had sex with the Moabite ladies. And the ladies. God don't play. And so when he refers to this, he's saying, you have let this internal problem, you have let this internal uh, complacency, you have let this internal compromise come into my house, this church, and it's a big deal. It's a big problem. So do we have that here? I would tell you that any teaching that is not founded in God's word and if you look at how Christ is described here, I think it's very interesting that Christ is described here as what? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword, which Hebrews tells us is what? God's word. And so God's word, they are not holding to the standard that is God's word. And they're teaching false things. They're teaching that it's okay to go to these festivals. That we are all free and forgiven under Christ. And so we can go to these festivals and we can do these immoral things with these immoral people. And it's okay because God will forgive us. He will look past it. All we have to do is repent. All we have to do is say, God, forgive me. All we have to do is say, God, I'm sorry. And God will forgive us. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom to cover up 
You're evil. And so when you think about the compromise that they had made, think about the compromise that you and I might make. Where we have these internal dialogues with ourselves of how much we can get away with. We play, let's make a deal with God. And we forget that God is not in the habit of making deals at all. He defines things as His will and not His will. He declares them openly and loudly. There's no guessing. But we often look for the question marks, don't we? It is often a problem for us that we look for the question marks. We say, God, you know, me and my girlfriend, we didn't go all the way. We almost did. So, you know, I don't feel like I need to repent from that. I might need to be like, hey, God, what's up about it? But, you know, there ain't, I don't mean, you know, it's not a big deal. It's very clear here that a church that compromises when it comes to God's word and what he defines as his will and not his will, that anyone that compromises, it says this. Look at verse 16. It says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to who? Come to you, the church, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Those that make the compromise, I will come and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with my word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us, and able to pierce to the very core of our being. He will fight against them, and he will win. Not only have they compromised, but they've become so complacent that they've allowed this to go on for some time. And you and I, oftentimes, when we are confronted with sin that is entangled us and snared us, we oftentimes are very complacent. Especially at this current age that you're in because you feel as though you have time on your side and eventually you will get it right. I'll lay it out to you this way. If you're struggling with pornography now, guess what? You will struggle with it for forever if you don't get your life right with God. It won't get better when you're married. We talk about that in sex and dating. It won't get better when you're married. You say, well, Casey, when I have sex, when I have the availability to have a wife to have sex with, I won't want to go to the internet to look for sex. Wrong. Multiple studies have shown that. You say, well, I, I struggle with this sin now, pride, jealousy, rage, whatever it is. And you know what? I'll eventually get a handle on it. Guess what, man? Time is slipping away. You ain't getting no younger, and it just gets harder. So deal with it now. Don't become complacent. So how do you do these things? How do you get rid of the compromise and the complacency? It's very clear to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. He'll give you two things that we don't know anything about. 
but they show us what God does for us. The hidden manna, no one knows what that is. If you look at scholarly books after commentary, after co- no one knows what that is. People will speculate, but no one knows what that is. But what we do know is, where does manna come from? It comes from God. And so basically it's saying that God will provide sustenance for you and I as we seek to overcome this compromise and this complacency. Then it says he will give him what? Something even weirder than that. I will give him a white stone with a new name on it. You're like, thanks God, thank you for the stone that is white. (laughs) I appreciate it. No one knows what that is or what will be written on it. But we do know what we feel like John is giving an example of, and that's this. Oftentimes, the white stone in their culture would be one of acquittal. And so if you were voting on someone's guilt, you would use a black stone for guilty and a white stone for innocence. When you vote on something, have you ever heard the idea of being blackballed? That's where this comes from. That's the idea that was stolen from that. And so we have a couple of things that we can learn this evening. The point to ponder is this. What do you deal with in your life that Christ has dealt with on the cross? Why do you allow false teaching to take root in your life? By that I mean, what are you currently compromising and become complacent about that God has already dealt with? If he is the true victor over sin, death, and the grave, what has he already conquered that you are allowing to continually take root and grow in your life? Will you not let his word slay that? Conquer that? Crush that? And the point to practice is this. So we're going to stick it to the devil tonight. You should have in your seat a sticky note. Hopefully you haven't folded it up into a paper airplane. A lot of you here tonight, um, engineers. So grab your sticky note and a pen. So the point to practice tonight There's some instructions to it. And this has directly to do with your complacency and my complacency and our willingness to allow sin to take root in our life and not deal with it because we're like, I don't know if God can can, can deal with this. I don't know if God can crush this. Well, his word says that he can. But it's really clear what we're supposed to do. It says repent and then use God's word against the sin. And so tonight, what I want you to do, this is just you. I want you to write on the paper, on that little bitty sticky note, sin that you struggle with. You say, well, somebody might see. Who freaking cares? They're writing stuff too. You're going to compare if your stuff's as bad as theirs? Wrong way to look at it. Don't be generic either. Don't say pride. Be specific. Let God deal with you. 
Okay? Let God deal with you. Tonight, you know what you're struggling with, and the Lord has spoken to you in your heart, hopefully, and I'm sure that it hurts. So let's turn the hurting into healing as He forgives and forgets your sin and mine. Take that sticky note. Write the stuff that you compromise. That you compromise on each day, each night. Let His Word pierce your heart this evening to the very core. Then I want you to take that sticky note. When you're done, I don't want you to put it on the inside cover of your Bible. Just slap it there. Maybe back, you know, in the very back where the book of Revelation is. Just, just put it in there. And I want you to let that be a reminder, that sticky note, that tonight that you stuck it to Satan through the sword of God's word. Because that's where you put that sticky, you put it inside the sword. And you said, God, deal with this. Help me deal with this. Deal with this in my life. I'm tired of being stuck by sin or being stuck in sin. God, I want to stick it to Satan tonight. I hope that in your heart and in your mind that you would cease to compromise that you wouldn't be complacent about falsehoods in your life. That you would let the sword slay the sin in your life. Kill it dead. I mean, if you need help, we're here to help you. If you need prayer, here to pray with you. You don't have to go through this alone, but know that the victory's already been won. The cross, the grave are there to remind us that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He holds the keys to death and Hades in His hands. He is the one whose mouth whose hand, whose body is there for you and me. The band's going to play. I'll be down front if you would like to pray. We're not going to be long. Then we have some instructions for you. But I would encourage you, if you have not already written to write, and then, man, take your hands, put them on your Bible, and pray, God, God, help, heal. Lord, make me whole again.
and again. No more compromise. No more complacency. Don't you want that manna? Don't you want to celebrate the acquittal? The, hey, I'm innocent because he's innocent. Amen? Let's pray. God, in the next few moments, we ask that you deal with us in a mighty way. Lord, as the band sings, Lord, let our hearts cry out. Let our voices be raised to you and you alone. 